ever wondered why African contributions to philosophy, science and technology do not rank alongside other more recent civilizations? Well, I think it is because we do not know enough. Some brilliant archaeologists and historians have been busy and know much more. Welcome to the Ancient Roots Podcast, dedicated to conversations with these archaeologists and historians to discover and to wonder the how the ways of the ancients could help our modern ways. Thank you, Professor Gundera. Thank you for accepting our invitation to discuss what I consider a very important subject at this time. And uh, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. So if I may just kick off by asking archaeology, many people don't know what it is. How did you get into archaeology? How come you studied archaeology? <laughs> Thank you. Well, archaeology is a fascinating discipline. I first came across archaeology in the dictionary. My father had uh, an old Oxford dictionary, possibly uh, 1960 edition. And um, I had the habit when I was in elementary school to glance through it to discover new words. And uh, But it was not until uh, I was in uh, high school, when I was actually about to finish high school, that I came across the word archaeology. Uh, the description of what it is fascinated me. The study of the past uh, using material remains. And there's something there that, that struck me as, as something I would like to study. But by that time, I was planning to study history in the university. I actually, I was applying to study history in the university in my, at uh, what is now Obafemi Awolo University in uh, Nigeria. So I made inquiries uh, about where in Nigeria one can study archaeology and I discovered that in my hometown, there's a university there, University of Ibadan, that uh, offers archaeology. But you can only be admitted with your A-level. And I was trying to get to university through my whole ordinary levels, all levels. Mm. So, so I couldn't apply. So I went anyway to Ife to study uh, history. Lo and behold, uh, the same semester that I got there, the university started archaeology program. Fantastic. So by luck, a professor came to one of my history classes and introduced archaeology to the class. And it was not, I don't think he had already arrived in, in his office before I got there to, to sign up. So I became the first student to sign up for archaeology program in the new in, in the university. So uh, it was a brand new program. I was one of the first uh, seven students in that uh, court. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> oh, it's archaeology. So that's how I, I enter archaeology field and I, I never look back since then. <laughs> that sounds so, like it was meant, meant to be. And yes. Yes. And interesting that, I mean, what, what I took from that is you come from a background that prided itself with knowledge and you were 
for you to be reading at, in primary school, to be reading a dictionary, you were academically inclined already. Well, uh, my father was an uh, elementary school teacher. And uh, he, so I, ha I have that advantage uh, among many of my peers because, you know, I grew up in a, in a, in a big city, but in a, I would say, work, I won't call them working class, but I would call them indigenous city. I grew up in Ibadan. You know, it's an indigenous city where people are, not, we, but we do not see ourselves as poor in any way. I mean, we yeah. just, that's just the way life is. So, so we didn't have much means, but education was very important. Yes. Mm. And uh, uh, so I knew from the beginning that that is the path uh, to the future. Uh, so, and of course, my father being um, a teacher, <laughs> uh, that was no excuse. Uh, so I, I initially he, he monopolized the dictionary in the house. Uh, that was the because you know in Nigeria we always say that dictionary is your second best teacher. Mm -hmm. Anything you do, you do not know, ask your teacher, but then ask your dis dictionary. So a dictionary in a, in, in a household is always the most used document. This was before the internet, right? So anything that you want to learn in terms of the meaning of words, you wrote to that dictionary. So my father monopolized it for several years, but when he realized that I took interest uh, in the book, in the, in the, uh, is, the, is the book, right? it's, the, it's, uh, it's more important in my household than the Bible. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so uh, he began to relinquish the monopoly of that of that book, and, uh, and I took a big advantage of, of it, you know, by, by just reading, quizzing myself about words and spelling and all those things. <laughs> Fantastic. That's yeah. um, a second thing we, we, we have in common, I just discovered, because I spent a year at University of Ife, actually, before I went, I went to UNN. Oh, and interesting. Both my parents are teachers. Oh, <laughs> then went on to work in the ministry, but they started off as teachers. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my next question is, on the African continent, we seem to be, all the, the countries or most other countries seem to be struggling with the democracy that was brought by the Europeans even though they, 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 they struggle with it, we are still carrying on with it. From your interest, because um, your interest is in social organizations, if I'm, if I'm correct. Yes. What, yes. what have you come across in the different peoples in Africa that, could, that we are missing out in finding a way to to negotiate this governance? Mm. <laughs> Excellent question, uh, Mr. Ubonna. Africa is struggling through the process uh, of governance. Yes, that is an endemic problem in Africa. Over the past 20 or 25 years, Africa made some progress, although we are now relapsing, in, uh, in the area of uh, liberal democracy. We, we, we try to embrace uh, the Western liberal democracy, whether it is the parliamentarian system or it's the American presidential system. I want to emphasize that there's nothing wrong in liberal democracy. There's nothing wrong in all in, in African countries adopting 
uh, some form of liberal democracy. I'm not saying that we should copy everything that is in it, uh, given the fact that even in the West, they are struggling with uh, implementing that liberal democracy today. Uh, but we have to separate two things. One is the system of governance. One is the people who run that system of governance. I think the problem of Africa is not because we are copying Western liberal democracy. I do not think that is the problem. I think the problem is that many of our people, including leaders, uh, they are not committed to the spirit of liberal democracy. And uh, sometimes the, the governed themselves are not fully uh, uh, aware of the possibilities of a liberal democracy. I would not like to say that uh, Africans should return to certain forms of governance they had in the past as a way of, of, of moving forward. Because at the end of the day, people, people are going to manage it. And if people are not committed to certain fundamentals that all of us or most of us agree to in the 21st century as important, then it's not going to work. What are those fundamentals? Uh, freedom of speech. Equity, providing a means of living for the majority of the people. So if the government of the people is going to be by the people and for the people, the people must see the dividends of that system in their everyday lives in terms of providing for their welfare, providing jobs. So liberal democracy in Africa today is under threat because people are not seeing the dividends of it. They are not seeing, you know, there's an increase in, uh, in on, on youth unemployment. There is underemployment for the adults. The, the government is not working. People in government are not working for the people. They are working for themselves. So the, that problem, therefore, is not about liberal democracy. It's about the people who are running it. However, uh, I also want to emphasize that as an archaeologist, as, a, as an historian, as someone who is interested in social organization, uh, how societies are created, I'm always amazed and impressed by how African ancestors managed their society. Now, I'm not saying that everything, I don't, I don't want to paint an idyllic picture here, that everything was rosy and perfect. No, it was not perfect. But what I want to but what I want to emphasize is that in many situations where we have these great civilizations, these great empires, and even uh, societies that are not empires, that's what that were that were acephalous, what we call acephalous societies that are not organized along uh, uh, empire or kingdom, but they are organized at village level. They are organized uh, along clan. What you see there is the commitment of the leadership of the society for the well-being of the people whom they lead. That is the disconnection between what we have in post-colonial society and what we have in the pre-colonial society. That the leaders are removed 
from the aspirations and the pains of their people. And therefore, they have not succeeded in, in providing resources that the state uh, empowers them to, to provide to their people. So that is where, why today in Burkina Faso, in Mali, you have coups and people are on the streets jubilating. Common people can care less about the promise of liberal democracy when it does not lead to food on the table, it does not lead to security, it does not lead to respect and dignity for human rights. So, so this is the disconnection. The problem itself is not liberal democracy. The, the system itself is not uh, having kingship or kingdom. No, that's not the problem. <laughs> Some kingdoms work well for the people. <laughs> and they, yes. uh, you know, so. Yeah, so, so um, you, because you, you've mentioned this a few times about the commitment, about people then need not being committed. And this is why I guess the question came to me that what is behind this lack of commitment? Could it be, because if it's not the system, but it's the people and the commitment of the leaders and mm. the understanding of the people. Could it be because there's a disconnect between the system that is there and the natural values of the people and perhaps what their ancestors have had and evolved so that you now have bring a new system and there's a disconnect with it? Because if in the old, old times, there was commitment, and in the new times, there isn't commitment. Could mm. it be that the system is not tapping enough into the old ways that people intrinsically perhaps would lean to? So this jubilation is jubilation that the people are, are going and the, the, the liberal democracy is going. It is not necessarily an endorsement of the military people. They're, it sounds to me like people are just happy for change because they're hoping that something new will come. But what that thing new new thing is, that is a challenge. That is a challenge. They don't know what that new change would be, but they are tired of what they were going through before the military coups struck. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, our contact as a scholar of the of history and archaeology. Uh, our contemporary problems or challenges in Africa can only be fully understood uh, and therefore come up with uh, a clinically accurate solutions when we understand how we go here. Colonialism is the big elephant in the room, right? Colonialism created a new Africa and put in place on African people to be in charge of it. See, colonialism created new values. And when you look at colonial education, colonial education created people, elite, that were taught to have disdain for their society. They were taught, they were socialized, to believe that Africa of the pre-colonial was a place of darkness, was a place without history. You see, colonial education 
we tend to focus on the on the exterior forms of it. We tend to focus on certain knowledges of science and 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 methods of inquiry. We don't usually look at colonialism as an infrastructure of denigration in a way that is very subtle, but very, very economical and very, very effective. So when you take young men and young women at times, pull them away from their society at an early age, you put them in the boarding school. You socialize them in a particular way of thinking. And you did not include their, their ancestral ways of knowing. Well, over 12 years, you've created a new person who cannot relate anymore with or to his people. This person now sees himself or herself in the image of the European district officers who terrorized his people. He saw himself now playing that role now. He became a terror of his own people because he has not been taught how to be compassionate. He has been taught to, to have disdain. This is a fundamental that we have not interrogated this process enough in Africa. Yes, we, we learn about all, all these subjects, oh, history, the Greek, and we, do, you know, we, we were taught all those things in school. But our leaders, our pioneering leaders, they saw themselves as elite as removed. The only time they needed the, 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 the people was when they needed them to endorse them for political offices. They did not relate to the people as equals. They saw themselves as leaders and bosses. This is the foundation of, of liberal, what we that call liberal democracy. Europe, whether it's France, whether it is Britain, they did not teach us how to govern ourselves through colonialism, they did not. We gained our independence and they expected us to just sort ourselves out. So we have the, the infrastructure of liberal democracy, but without the ethics that go with liberal democracy, without the middle class that go with liberal democracy, without compassion, without a sense of equity that, that, that are the ideals of liberal democracy. You see, so uh, uh, the, the, our, our foundation elite or leaders, they were, they were caught between acting like a king, an autocratic king, and acting like a pseudo-liberal democrat. That is, that is the foundation. And now, we now have about, about, about four generations. Oh, sorry. We now have about three generations, basically, uh, uh, who have gone through that process. So I'm not surprised, therefore, that whether it is in Nigeria, whether it is in Ghana, whether it's in Senegal, uh, DRC, Kenya, we that is the picture that we have. We have the leadership that is removed from the people. We look down on the people as subservient or uh, as subhuman beings. Uh, you know that that I think I mean there are there are other problems that the post-colonial condition created. Of course, you know we can talk about that. Uh, but in terms of the mindset of our leaders in Africa, they are not acting to the 
basic principles of liberal democracy that uh, they are they are idealistic. I mean, we all know that, but those ideals are important so that society can move forward towards progress. Yeah, no, thank you, uh, thank you. Because when you observe what you just described now, those leaders, it was not just the leaders themselves, but their family and the close, people close around them were mm -hmm. also shaped in this way. So you see generations. So for, for example, the number of times you see a father, um, a son coming into power, even if it's in a democracy after the dad, Mm -hmm. and, you see, and the, the, the attitudes don't tend not to be that different. So my mm -hmm. curiosity, though, is that if there were governance systems, so then there are many different diverse uh, peoples on the continent, and some of them had more, like the Igbo, uh, were supposed to have a more democratic, equitable system, Mm -hmm. And yes, it may not have included women at the same level, but the women had their own um, hierarchies. And other people had kings, but kings who took care of their people. So how come we then abandoned that when we were left to govern ourselves? And I'm just wondering, is there any example that you could, um, from your studies of social organization on the continent, of a people that if their that their values could be used to shape the liberal democracy we have now to make it more equitable more in tune with the the values of the continental people yes um you've already mentioned uh, some examples among the eagles uh you have uh what we call direct democracy more or less in that society is uh, that is that is anchored on some principles of of coexistence uh, some principles of uh, equity uh, it doesn't mean that individuals were not given the opportunity to be what they want to become but there are certain ethical guidelines that are no longer there uh, once you fold those people into a bigger config configuration of the Nigerian state, right? The Igbo did not, uh, for the most part, they did not uh, have uh, kings, but they ran a society that was, uh, to, a, to a large extent, uh, 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 prosperous, and, 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 and where you will not find uh, homeless people <laughs> for, 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 for thousands of years. Their neighbors to the west, uh, the Yoruba, they had kings. Yes, they have hierarchies of chieftaincies. But again, uh, the kings were not, for the most part, <laughs> they were not autocrats. In fact, the king ruled at the pleasure of the populace, of the non-royal houses. And so, so we... Among the Yoruba, they, we, they have what they call indirect democracy. The king was elected by the leaders of the non-royal houses or the non-royal lineages in the town. They are the ones who come together to elect. To, of course, they will do some divination, they will do some sacrifices, and then 
they will consult with the gods first, and then they will they will vote, and then they will appoint someone from the royal house to rule as king. So they share power. But if that king started becoming autocratic, that means that the same non-royal lineages can vote to remove that king from office. So there are checks and balances. Yes. That is one thing I've noticed. And women, and, and, and whether it is among the Igbo, whether it's among the Yoruba, or among the Mande, the women are represented in government. They may not be in the public space talking, but in the interiority of power, in the interiority of, of, of decision-making, they were involved. So contrary to what colonialism told us, Africa has not been a place where women were relegated. You cannot relegate women. Among the Yoruba, for example, the women control the crown that the king wears. So if they withdraw that crown, crown there's no longer a king, right? <laughs> so so yeah. you can see the, the gender balance in the society as well as, as, as a, a class balance. Yeah. So these societies, they have already worked out a system of governance. After, after, after thousands of years of experimentation, which colonialism threw away because those who were divided up, uh, the Yoruba was split between three countries, Togo, Nigeria, the public, and Nigeria, they are moved together with other people. And now, but so we have to create a new system of government. Yeah. Where do we get that? Of course, we borrow from outside, you know. So yeah, these are these are the these are the challenges. So I think back to your question though, we can we can tap those things that worked in the past. And which can still work today. See, I, I call it ethical humanism. You know uh, uh, that we need we need to return to that ethical humanism that that that, that focus on the well being of the people. That that, that focus on, on on sharing. That focus on compassion. That focus on making sure that no one will go hungry. This may sound idealistic but it is possible <laughs> to achieve them. So if people are able to have good food, good health, care, then democracy will be something that they will guide. They will protect it. But when they cannot achieve those things, then democracy is not going to work. <laughs>